Heavenly Father, God, I do thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I just ask now that you would uh, bless this time that we have together and uh, give us, um, Lord, your spirit to guide and direct our conversation. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so question 27, part two. Um, the question was, are all people just as they were lost through Adam saved through Christ? Very important question. Are all people, right, every single person, we know they're all lost through Adam. Are they all then saved through Christ? In other words, when Christ died on the cross, did he pay for the sin of the whole world? Did he, was it actually paid for at that moment? And I think we went over the, I told you the answer that they give is broken up, I think, into three parts. And uh, so the answer is no. Only those who are elected by God and united, uh, united to Christ by faith. Nevertheless, God in his mercy demonstrates common grace even to those who are not elect, by restraining the effects of sin and enabling works of culture for human well-being. So the three parts of that, um, the first part, and we all were easily in agreement on this part, is no. Um, I think I mentioned last week, and I'm, I'm fighting the urge to reteach all of this because that's my nature to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to redo the whole thing, but I do feel I need to refresh from last week. Um, but this note, such an important part. Uh, I remember there was several years ago, there, was the, there were these videos put out by a guy named Rob Bell. Has anybody ever heard that name before? They were called these NUMA videos. I, I loved them. I, they were great little videos, little teaching things, wonderful, enjoyable, uh, so spot on so many times. Uh, but then Rob Bell, at some point, abandoned the authority of Scripture and started saying that, Ultimately, among other things he was saying, ultimately that everybody goes to heaven. I think, I think there's a couple of theologians that I would have some measure of respect for that have also fallen into that trap of saying everybody ultimately, and Rob Bell, um, in his book, I think the book was called Love Wins, um, and I have to say, I get the sentiment. Do you guys get the sentiment? Do you guys get, the, I mean... I, I know my own sinfulness, and I get the, the wish, so to speak, of that in the end, everybody would go to heaven. I really get that. But unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, that's not true. God's word is very clear on this, this aspect. That's a hard truth, isn't it? Is that one of those truths that is just hard? Um, it's also a truth that I think gets misconstrued a lot, right? But I talked about this last week, so I'm not going to do it again. Um, I, the second part of that, uh, only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith. And one of the things I talked about last week is regardless of where you land on this, you have to deal with that word elect because it's in the Bible, Right? Unlike the word trinity that is not in the Bible, uh, which we don't have a problem accepting, the word elect is. You've got to do something with that in your mind. You've got to say, what does it mean? And I said, I, I know where I land on this. I know where I understand the scriptures teach on this. And I'm great with it. I love it. In fact, when it's, my, it's one of my favorite truths, one of the truths that gets me going so much. The only thing that I, I always like to bring up, though, is that there are some connected to this, but indirectly connected to this, there are some teachings that are heretical, and um, I shared these last week. Um, one of them, and this one is from a guy named Pelagius, 
So Augustine battled with him, so to speak, over this, contended with Pelagius over this reality. And this is, this, is the, this is the sticking point for me. This is the important part. Pelagian, in the Pelagian view, no natural corrupt, there's no natural corruption from sin in people. I don't know how anybody could believe that, to be honest with you. I mean, you look around the world around you. How could you... I mean, even, even people that go, oh, but the babies are so... Babies are the most selfish, self-indulgent creatures on the planet. They don't care about you. They want stuff from you, and if they don't get it, they're going to scream and cry until they do, right? Yeah. This one, I don't, you know, I don't encounter this one very often in this Christian realm of what we consider to be Christianity. The second one, I do encounter from time to time, and what's more important, I do encounter the second one from time to time amongst people who would definitely clearly consider themselves to be Christians, and I want to tell you, this second one is a heretical teaching, okay? It's heresy. It is not true, okay? Second one is semi-Pelagian view. The semi-Pelagian view uh, is that people are greatly corrupt, yet retain. There's some little bit left, just enough ability to do some good, including respond to the gospel in saving faith. So they have just enough in them to either accept or reject the gospel, Okay? Um, we're able to respond to the gospel without God having to first deal with corruption and deadness in our hearts. Again, this one is heresy because the Bible clearly teaches that once we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Um, and then I gave an illustration. The poor view, I don't know who all was here last week, but the, the terrible view that I used to hear was in that song, Throw Out the Lifeline. Do you guys remember that? Throw out the lifeline, right? And I said, that, that's, a, that's a terrible view not biblical about what happens in evangelism, right? Like there's people out there going, I need help, right? And you throw the lifeline out and they, they grab it and we, we look at it as like sharing the gospel. And if anybody remembers, that, that is not a good view. A much better view, and she's smiling already, a much better view would be a dead body floating out in the ocean that the sharks have been nibbling on. And your presenting of the gospel, throwing out that lifeline, even if you have wonderful aim and you get it just right, and you, you land it, perfect landing, the, the most you're going to do maybe is knock an arm off or something like that because it's rotted so much. Right? Throw out the lifeline. Ooh. Um, that's not good. That's not pretty. Um, but that's a more accurate view to Scripture. And I love the, the good view or the good illustration, I think, of Lazarus and the grave, right? Dead. Salvation is very much, in my opinion, like that, where Christ says, Lazarus, come out. And you think about, does Lazarus need to obey that to get back into life? Yes. Could he obey that in his state? No. Right? I mean, if I walked up to a dead body and said, get up, it's not going to happen, apart from the very Spirit of God giving life to that body. So that's a much better illustration, I think. But the key here, there's something that's embedded in this idea, this semi-Pelagian view. Once again, I think it's heresy. But I want to say that in this, embedded in this, is the question where they go next. Because do you see good 
in this world outside of Christianity? I know that sounds like a trick question, just on surface level. Do you ever see people who are not Christians do what we could easily describe as good things? Yeah. Okay. And you see a little bit of in, a little bit of that in there, and so we need to answer that question is where we're going next. Again, I went to the next two views, Arminian, and I told you if you land here, I'm okay with that. I don't land here, so I hope that you're okay with me, right? Um, if you land here, I think this fall, falls into what is considered to be Christianity, a view of Christianity. Uh, people are born completely corrupt and unable to respond to God, but God gives provenient grace, grace right in that moment. So the gospel comes, God will give grace uh, to all who hear the gospel, undoing enough of the corruption in their hearts that they are able to seek or to reject the offer of the gospel. One of the, the problems with this Arminian view is usually what is attached to this, and I have seen this, most people that fall lean this direction, is that if, you can, if, if, the, if it works this way, they also many times will believe that you can walk away from the faith. So you can be genuinely saved at some point, and then at some point in the future, it's possible to be genuinely not saved. I don't agree with that because the Holy Spirit is given to us as a seal guaranteeing our inheritance. If somebody walks away from the faith, I would agree with John who said they, wa- they left us because they were not all of us, right? That's a topic for a different day we could talk about. But I think that in this, there's a lot of questions that could come up in which, by the way, if you ever have any, well, what about, what about, what about, please feel free to ask. Um, the final view of Calvinism, uh, people are born completely corrupt and unable to respond to God. So notice it starts very similar to the last few, right, unable. Um, but God will give life and light to those he has elected to save, removing the corruption of sin and opening their eyes to the glory of the gospel so that they will respond in faith to the gospel call. And so that's where I land. That's what I believe the scriptures teach. We talked about this last week again, so I'm not going to delve into this. We're going to delve into the next portion of this, which part three, which by the way, if you're looking at any of those again, second time around, you're going, I got some questions about that. Please jot them down, uh, give them to me afterwards, and uh, I'd love to answer them. Um, Even if there are questions like, yeah, but Matt, if you believe this, what about? Even those questions. I love those too. What about, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Um, all right, but part three of the answer that we did not get to last week, and I'm going to try to give an overview of this week, is this part. Nevertheless, God in his mercy demonstrates, and there's this term here, common grace, even to those who are not elect, by restraining the effects of sin and enabling works of culture for human well-being. Um, this even though this part is not really mentioned in the question, I think it comes up naturally from the question, okay? Especially when you consider the different views of humanity. Are, is there good? What, what about the good? Um, what about people who do good, right? What, what is, what's that mean? What about, um, uh, well, how about this one? Do good people go to hell? Right? Um, how does good even happen in this world? I mean, we know that good does happen in the world. We see it biblically. We see wicked kings doing good things that benefit God's people. Does anybody know of any examples of that? A wicked king doing something good that benefited God's people. Yeah, um, and that was where he was sending people back to build the temple, right? I mean, Cyrus was not someone who was falling after God, but that was a good thing that happened. Does anybody else know any other examples? I had a couple written down, but I, I didn't know if anybody else had. So I didn't. 
spend a lot of time trying to find these uh, biblical examples of people doing good um, that are not followers of God. Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. And we think, we hope, maybe eventually he was from that one prayer that he prays, but I, I, I'm not sure. It sure seems like maybe he did eventually, but even before that, you see him doing some of those things. Um, how about historically? You may know any historical examples of people who did something good. They weren't followers of Jesus Christ, but they did good things. This is it's not a trick question. Some of you may be thinking of people like, well, it, 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 like, I'm going to give you an example. I don't know. I have a lot of questions about it based on what this person would have said they believed and what they were trusting in for their salvation. But Mother Teresa, I think, did a lot of good things. Was she saved? I don't know. If she was believing and hoping in these good things would earn her into heaven, then I would say she was not truly a child of God. If, on the other hand, at the end of the day, she said, I'm doing these things, but my only hope is really Jesus Christ, I would say that there is a great possibility that she could be in heaven one day, right? Um, which that opens up a door to a lot of other questions, doesn't it? How much do you have to believe to truly be a child of God? That's a great question to ponder, isn't it? Um, how about just experientially? Have you ever met somebody or even recently in the news heard of people who are doing good things that were not followers of Jesus Christ? I thought this would be like multiple. Hmm? In the, new, in the news, in the world, not maybe today. <laughs> yeah. And he will tell you, I've seen interviews, like, yeah, I'm not a Christian. Yeah. There's a couple others. I was trying to think of one of them. Um, a couple different people who were atheists, but did a lot of, what is the word, philanthropist? They were did a lot of, I mean, just were very generous with their money. Yeah. I always think of Jerry Lewis, who's a muscular. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, in my own personal life, I'm going to be honest with you, I've found that many people that I know, kids at the high school, who do not love Jesus, are not following after him, can sometimes be the nicest kids I meet. And then I meet kids in Christian situations that would call themselves Christians. I mean, I'm not going to name names. I'm not talking about you guys. You guys are all wonderfully sweet. <laughs> but I've met some kids who would call themselves Christians that are frankly just mean, rude. I mean, do you get, I'm going to be honest with you. When I look at this topic, this has not been a dilemma for me. I, I, this is not one I wrestle with. But I do know, because almost every book that deals with atheism or refuting atheism deals with this problem of evil and good in the world, and how does that fit with a good God? And it's a challenge for a lot of people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. good things that yeah. were good people. But I read that little book by Andy Stanley where mm -hmm. it says good is, that good is not good 
Mm. And it, that's what it, you know, it was about. Yeah. It was just because you're good doesn't yeah. mean you're going to go to heaven. Right. You know, basically doing all good things or good that you think if mm-hmm. you haven't done X, Y, and Z. Yeah. It, I have not read that book, but it, it's, that's so true. I mean, it's easy for me to wrap my mind around a Hitler spending eternity in hell. But there's some people I know that I, that I go, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. Because in many ways, they were even nicer than me. Which is very difficult. I'm super nice. <laughs> not really. I'm not all that nice. I'm going to be kind of mean. Uh, but you just go, how can that be? How does that work? And I think that's what's at the heart of this question. And uh, theologians have described this and come to, to term the answer to this, what is known as, come to be known as common grace. Um, I was reading about this uh, again just this morning in one of the, my uh, theological works, John Frame, where he was talking about this and he said, I don't even know if it could be called common grace. The Bible doesn't use grace, and these usually use grace, as, grace in terms of God's people and the blessings on specifically his people. He didn't have a problem with it, but he did say we could almost think of it more as God's common goodness, right? There are good things that God does in this world. Um, it was during the Reformation that the terms common grace started really catching hold from what I could tell from the study that I did. That's when it really started to catch on as a theological term of common grace. Um, I think John Calvin and Abraham Kuyper both did a lot of work with this, um, before that time, right around that time, John Calvin kind of expanded it, but before that time, we thought of common grace, and I'm going to tell you, this is something I absolutely believe, that they, it was originally common grace was God's good benefits to a society directly related to the gospel, okay? Now, I would say that that's a true thing. If you look at our country that we're in, I'm going to tell you, there are a limitless number of examples of things that are rooted in Christianity, right? That they've, they've, people have tried to leave God out of it, but these good benefits that are still there, and it's not going to last as we're seeing in our culture, okay? But you have to understand, one of my favorite books on this topic is, is called When Children Became People. You guys are people. Did you know you were people? <laughs> You're idiots too. <laughs> But you're also pe- you're idiot people. I mean, your brains aren't even fully developed yet. I mean, you, you, guys, you guys are working on partial brain cells. I mean, you, not till you're, what, 21 or 22 that your brains are even... I mean, so I don't hold it against you. I mean, I'm, I'm an idiot too. At least I have a full brain, though. I, they're not liking that, are they? Uh, it's science. Sorry. Um, so I lost my train of thought. I went off deep in um yeah full bra- okay maybe i don't have not 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 all the pistons are firing in mine anymore I, I, i've reached my peak i'm on the downhill slide um but uh i'm going to take a moment here where i want to ramble incoherently while i'm trying to remember what i was talking about <laughs> oh yes when children became people that's what i was talking about so when children became, it's a very interesting book. Historically, especially like the times of the New Testament, children weren't people to them. They were regularly discarded, not 
and like we talk about abortion in our day and the evils of abortion, but in that day, they would wait. You're born and just leave them outside the city. And you know, who, one of the first groups of people, like as a group, not the only ones, I'm sure not the only ones, but one of the first groups of people that saw that as a, a, an important thing to deal with and work with were Christians in those days. There are stories of them seeing this happen and going out and getting those babies and rescuing them. And it's an amazing historical reality that children having that identity, that they're important and valuable. Like we just take that for granted in our culture, that children are valuable. But I'm telling you, it was not always, that's not a, just a natural thing. What, what you see is that it's those teachings of the scriptures that infiltrated all of our society. People like to give Western culture uh, the thumbs down. But I'm telling you, that's a, a great benefit that came directly from scripture that has infiltrated our society. What's, what's scary is that, and again, I'm veering slightly off my notes, but what's scary is that, that but that's what this common grace was originally about, that it was, you're going to see if a, a society embraces the scripture, you're going to see those natural benefits of it. And I, I absolutely agree with that. You see the same thing with education. People, Christians were the ones that were working, but everybody should be able to read. And specifically, they were going so they can read the Bible. But you see the, this dominance of we, everybody should be educated. Well, that started with Christians that were working for that. Orphanages. It was a Christian thing. I mean, there's so many examples of this. I think as well, for me, I think of, again, science, because some of the greatest scientific minds came at it and they said, this is God's world that he has blessed us with, and we're going to try to figure out how, how it works because this designer has these things, and they would try to figure those things out. Isaac Newton, Christian, I mean, there's so many different examples of them that they, they looked at those things, and, they, and then that, even that idea of discovering what these things meant led to discoveries in medicine, right, and all sorts of things. I mean, we just, we're reaping the benefits of a Christian culture in our world today. But like I said, as we fade away from that, we're going to see those things, which I think is why you see things like abortion as such a huge thing. Why is that? Because as you step away from those things, you're going to see that. But now, not to, not to get too far off course, because common grace also, I think, refers to, it's become known as covering a much greater, grander topic. So I'm going to borrow from, uh, first of all, I'm going to borrow from John Murray. John Murray defines common grace this way, and I think I have this in your notes. Common grace is, and he said it this way, every favor of whatever kind or degree falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. You can genuinely, literally say, if there's something good, Ultimately, that's from God, right? When it rains on our crops, when the sun rises, that's God doing that. Um, I think of, uh, I can't remember who it was now. I think it was C.S. Lewis talked about, um, I'm positive, it was C.S. Lewis. He talks about why, do, why does that flower open at the dawn? We, we, we get it down to those narrow topics of like the scientific reality of all this. But he proposes this thought. Have you ever noticed how children, I can, I can remember this with my kids, they'd say, do it again. 
right? Do it again. Now, what happens to us old people when they say do it again? That's enough. <laughs> That'll be enough of that, right? I can remember one of the ones was the, the swinging them around, right? Now, my kids, I'd like to do it by the hands. I also like to do it by the feet. I'd grab them by the feet and swing them around by the feet. What kind of head rush? Well, I was probably doing some damage to them. Uh, Another one, my, my son Josiah, I, I could not do this now, but he used to sit on my shoulders, and I would grab his ankles like this, and he would just go and fall backwards off my back, and his head would swing down between my legs, and I it, you know, never got injured. I know that you guys look at Josiah, and I was like, what's wrong with that kid? That's not how it happened, okay? That's just genetics he got from me. But you go, and he'd want to do it again, do it again, do it again. After a while... Uh, one more. We, I used to take a blanket, and they'd lay in the blanket, and you grab the ends. You ever do that, and you could swing them like this? Well, I would, I would do that, but then I would, I, would, I would get it all spun up like this, and then I would just pull it like this, and it'd spin the other way really, really... I can't even imagine what they were going, were going through their mind, and that was going... But the, do it again. Do it again. Well, when they started getting bigger, you're like... I'm trying, you know? But little kids, in their, in their innocence, they just do it again. And C.S. Lewis proposed the thought, maybe, maybe the reason the sun rises every morning is because God, in his infinite innocence, does not tire of glorious things. And every morning he says, do it again. Every time that flower opens up, it's because God said, do it again. And I think there might be some truth to that, that God is good. And I love this thought because when you go out and you start experiencing the world, when you see these little things, I, want, I encourage you to think that way, that this is a good gift from God. And I think God each and every time is saying, do it again, right? When the strawberries start growing on, it's not just the rain. It's not just, it's God doing all those things and working in that and developing that fruit again and again and again. All right. Now, theologians have come to break down this common grace in six areas. And so I'm going to share those six things with you. Now we're getting to the fill in the blanks. You guys ready? Got your, got your pens ready? You ready to fill in the blanks? Okay. Who of you were drawing flowers just now because I was talking about flowers? Was anybody? You were? Yeah, yeah I kind of. I did the same thing. All right. So the first one, and I, I'm going to be honest with you, I got all these from John Frame's theological book. He did a great summary of it, and sometimes when I read a great summary of something, I go, I'm not even going to try to resummarize this. This is great by itself, and so I just borrowed from him. Uh, first of all, God restrains sin, and I may have put next to that God forbids fallen men from doing all the wrong they could do. This is a tough one, because sometimes it doesn't feel that way, does it? Sometimes I think, where, where was God when Ted Bundy was on his killing spree? It seems like he was able to do all he could do. So this, was a t this is a tough one that I go, hmm. But I do believe there's truth to this. I do not believe that all men do all they could do that is evil. I believe that God many times intervenes and restrains all the potential sin from happening. I love, uh, well, let me tell you these passages first. The first one is Genesis 4.15. Now, I'm, I, once again, got these from John Frame. I put them all in there 
A couple of them I were like, I was like, that feels a bit of a stretch, but I get why he put it in, so I put it in there just for your sake. Genesis 4.15 uh, talks about when Cain had killed Abel, and Cain is worried then about who's going to take judgment on him, and God says, I'm going to put a mark on you so that nobody will. God restrained people from doing something to Cain. I thought that was a good example. That was one of them I, I felt that's a bit of a, I, that's a loose connection in my head, but I thought I would share that one. Uh, Genesis 11.6, um, God intervenes in the ta- at the Tower of Babel. Right? They're not doing what God had told them to do. They're rejecting that. They're building the tower. And God says, let, you know, let us go down and do this thing to them uh, to keep them from continuing on that course. Right? Uh, Genesis 26, uh, this is the story of Abimelech, one of the two times where Abraham uh, tells Sarah, just say you're my sister. Right? And you get this, one of the stories is with Abimelech, and Abimelech doesn't do it, and God comes to him, and, he sa- and God actually says to him in Genesis 26, he says, I kept you from sinning against me and from Abraham and from Sarah. I kept you from doing that. Um, that's an interesting one that really ties into it. Um, 2 Kings 19, um, uh, there's a story there, 19, 27 to 28, where God prevents Sennacherib. He's, he, Sennacherib is boasting of himself. And uh, he, God prevents him from doing all those things. I can't help but talk about Sennacherib. And I remember I was teaching at a Christian school down in South Carolina. And I got to teach a, um, a Pentateuch to Job or something. I, or no, it had to have been after that. We were teaching Old Testament. I had a Bible class I was teaching. And uh, to help the kids remember names, we, uh, every time we encountered a new name, we considered a, a dish on a menu, like if we were ever to create a menu. This is not important at all, I'm sorry. But Sennacherib was on the, I, I never forget, like that was one of the appetizers, right? Some ribs to snack on is a Sennacherib. I never forgot Sennacherib. I'm sure all those kids did. Um, <clears throat> Second Thessalonians 2, seven. This is another one where it talks about, it's talking about the man of lawlessness that's going to come and Paul says already there's this mystery of lawlessness that is already at work, but then it describes it in Second Thessalonians as God restraining it. Now, you may notice, why are you not turning to all these? I'm leaving that up to you. I'm trying to give you an overview, and so I'm trying to go quickly. This is a way to save time, but I encourage you to look up any of those passages um, and see what they say, because I think that each one of those does give a good example of how God does restrain sin in this world. Um, the second one, uh, God restrains his own wrath. I think this, is, this one is easier to accept. I mean, don't you look at and say, um, I don't know why sometimes God didn't just at some point go, <laughs> to me. Uh, think about right at the beginning when God had created Adam and Eve when they first sinned. Why didn't God just go, Whoosh, start over, Right? God restrained his wrath. I think there were good purposes in those things, grand, grand purposes in those things. Um, but I do believe God does restrain his wrath. The passage that I hear, the, have here, the first one I thought, again, I thought was a, an interesting one I never would have thought of on my own, uh, Matthew 19, 8, where God permits divorce. I thought, well, that's interesting because John Frame is saying, here's an example of how God 
holds back his wrath. Don't do this, but then he says, I permit it for these purposes and under the, because of the hardness of your hearts. I do permit this. And there was, what a gracious thing it has been. I'm going to be honest with you. What a gracious thing that has been in people, some people's lives. Right? That one's one to, to wrestle around with for a little while. Uh, Acts uh, 17.30 talks about how God has, during times of ignorance, God overlooked. That's the verse that um, William Carey uh, spoke to those monks when he said, uh, it was either that one or the next one, I, th- I think it was uh, Acts 17.30, where William Carey, as he's witnessing to these Buddhist monks, and they start to realize, if what you're saying is true, then my father, my grandfather, and all of our ancestors have died and gone to hell. If what you're saying is true, William Carey. And William Carey quoted this verse to them. In previous times, God overlooked those times of ignorance, but now he calls all to repent. Um, and I think that that's, that that's the point of that one. Uh, the rest of these here, Romans uh, 2, 4, Romans 3, 25, uh, both talk about God's forbearance and patience over former times and former sins. Psalm 86, 5 and Exodus 34, 6 both talk about how God is a good, loving, forgiving God. Okay? All right, let's go to the next one. It's taking all my effort not to just delve into each one of these individually. There's so much we could talk about. And I hope if you have questions, you're jotting them down. I haven't given a whole lot of time to chat. Um, Number three, God gives temporal blessings to all. This is what I was talking about earlier. Matthew 5, 45 talks about how God causes the rain and the sun to shine on the evil and the good. Right? This is something that God does. He, every day when the sun comes up, it's not like the sun's only rising for those who follow after Christ. What a weird world that would be, wouldn't it? Little beams around. It'd be easy to tell who's a Christian. Oh, you got some sunshine on you. Right? You know, God causes the sun to rise, rains to come. Uh, the rest of those psalms are all talking about the same sort of thing. And we get to some other ones. Unregenerate people do good. Uh, I was talking with Charity about this one this morning. This one, this one both Charity and myself, we, this one, I, I don't like the sentence. Because there's something I know. There is none who do good, no, not one. Luke 6.33, that first, or that third verse, I think I have that third one there. Luke 6.33 actually says, Jesus says, don't evil people do good things when good comes to them. So Jesus doesn't have a problem calling what evil people do good in a sense. And it is. Uh, Bill Gates. (laughs) Paul squirmed. Um, I know, though, that he, I mean, he's done some terrible things, but has there been some benefits in the realm of education from the money that he's donated? Yeah. Not as many as he probably said he was doing, but I think that's been the thing lately, right? Is that there's been a lot of fraud with that, as there seems to be with a lot of those things. But there's others who have donated, like you mentioned earlier, Elon Musk. There are people who do not love God who have donated generously and people have benefited from those things. Those things are good things. And what I hope that you see in this, this is the point of this whole thing, is that when someone who does not love God does good, do you know who we can ultimately thank for that? 
God. God uses unregenerate people to do good things. This is always a, a challenge. I know that ultimately, like Kathy mentioned in the title of that book earlier, that's not enough for salvation, right? Um, but if we're just looking at a surface level, in many senses, can evil people do good deeds, so to speak? Yes. Does anybody else have a problem with that statement? That I, I don't like it. Anybody, anybody else like me like that? Like, if some of you kind of, yeah. 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 And it's because we know what Romans teaches us, right? There's none who do good, no, not one. We know that ultimately, even those good deeds are like, what, what's it say in the Old Testament? Filthy rags before God. And so if we're, we're using the measuring, we're, think, we're thinking about it from those terms, from God's perspective, ultimately, even those things are not... Re- and so this is not theological, but the way I, I talk about it, I say, well, it's not really good. Right? Oh, oh yeah. They're, they're still living. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it just makes them look good. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 In in the greater scheme, as Christians, we go in the greater scheme of things. That word "good" is. Yeah. But like I mentioned before, Luke six thirty three, Jesus Himself says, "Don't evil people do good things to either I, I can't remember how to either get good or when good things have been done to them, right?" Um, so. That one we can wrestle with a little bit. Uh, the next one here. Unregenerate people know truth. That's a possible thing to happen. That, and that is, according to what we're talking about today, when someone who does not know Jesus Christ is not saved, right, has not been regenerated, they can still know truth. And where does that come from? Ultimately, what we're talking about is that comes from God. That is God blessing them with truth. Now, the passage that I have down here, uh, Romans 1.19, uh, talks about, that's the passage that's unfolding. It's one of the little comments, verse 19, is the one that says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But notice that first part, although they knew God. I find this interesting that so many people, you'll see this, when it gets down to just the worst possible moment, what, what do a lot of people do? Even people that are staunch atheists, what do they do in some of those worst possible moments? It get right, gets right down to it, life or death or something. What, what do a lot, of, a lot of people do? What's that? Yeah, turn to God, even if it's just verbally for a moment. Lord, help me. Yeah. Right? I think, I believe, not just think, I believe that in each and every human being, that truth is known, and that's what Romans one nineteen is talking about. Um, the other one I put in there, Romans two fourteen to fifteen, talks about how the law of God is written on their hearts, 
And what's interesting about that one, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that it's talking about when, when people who are not followers of Jesus Christ do things in the law, which you see. Why, why does the world know you shouldn't murder people? But why do they know that's wrong so often? This is the reason why. And it talks about even their conscience bearing witness against themselves. Ultimately, that law of God written on their hearts isn't what saves them, and that's what Romans 2 is talking about, but it is what convicts them ultimately. But I do think it's an important truth. All right, last one here. Um, unregenerate people experience some blessings of the Holy Spirit. And I have three examples here, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know what to do with these. I don't quite get it. I'm just telling you, here's three examples from Scripture where the Spirit of God works in somebody that is not regenerate. The first one there is Balaam. Who knows who Balaam is? Right with the donkey? <laughs> with the talking donkey, right? Um, that'd be great to see, wouldn't it? Talking donkeys. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I bet it was like, I bet he sounded like that too. <laughs> Balaam. Um, but Balaam, I don't believe is a follower of God. But God speaks to him and reveals things to him. And he says, I can't help but do what the Lord says. I know that we could probably debate on that one, his regenerate nature. But you do find him later getting killed in battle as he aligned himself not with the people of God. So there's some thoughts there that you go, hmm. Uh, the second one there is King Saul. More than once, there's a stories of King Saul who is overcome by the Spirit of God, and it says he prophesies. Yet I do not believe by the text of Scripture that King Saul was a child of God, regenerate. I don't know what to do with that. How is he... I, it's there. Uh, the third one, and this is, this is one I think by implication. Uh, recently in Luke 6 and Luke 10, when Christ sent his disciples back out, they all came back having done miraculous things. Healing, right? Giving the gospel. Amongst those ones, the first time and I think the second time, who was in that group? You know because it's in the notes. Who was in that group? Judas Iscariot. Have you ever scratched your head at that? So I think that when they were sent out, I think Judas Iscariot was probably doing all these same things, yet not a child of God. That's a tough one to wrestle with, too. You might, we might have 50 questions based on that one. But these, these are elements that are planned. This is what God's common grace is about. Um, I know we're out of time. I do want to throw up one thing in there. I just, I couldn't help but th tackle this one last thought before we're done. Just, just a thought to go on because one of the challenges that people have is not just how does good come in, but then what about evil in this world? And I want to tell you that God and his goodness is over all things, sovereign king of the universe. I'm going to give you two examples of this from scripture um, one of them is the story of joseph now let's say these this crew right here decided i mean liam he's been like you know i had a dream 
that, you know, I was up in church and all the rest of you just bowed down and were like, you're the best, Liam, you're the best, right? And they, they heard that and like, come on. Yeah, that's the face they were making. They don't do that, do they? Are you the best? Oh. <laughs> but let's say, let's say he was saying that. And let's say the, this group, they went, we're getting sick of this little Liam. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, oh, no, I'm giving her ideas. And let's say they go, we're going to sell him into slavery in Egypt. I don't know how you guys got to Egypt, but let's say you did it, right? Now, there is nothing about deciding to do that. Is there anything about them deciding to do that to little Liam that's good? Is that a good thing? Ava? Evil, that's evil. You cannot sell him to Egypt, okay? Just don't even think, don't be Googling it later. How to sell your brother to Egypt. No, still, yeah, still wrong. Good, yeah. Yet, when this happens, and there's a couple different passages there. One is, first of all, in Genesis 45, verses 5 and 7, twice Joseph says, God sent me here. Hmm. Who sent them? Well, the, the brothers did. But Joseph, no, God did it. And then he says it a little bit more clearly, because after... Uh, Jacob is gone. The brothers are like, oh, he was holding back, but he's going to kill us all now, now that dad's gone. And Joseph makes this comment. He says, as for you, and that word meant, that's translated meant, means purposed with intent. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it, purposed it for good. So somehow, somehow, I don't know how, but somehow in those evil intentions of the brothers, God had good intentions in those evil intentions. And God is not the author of evil. It says that in James. But yet somehow God is over these things. The last one, let me give you the last one here because I, no, I probably can't. We're out of, are we way out of time? I can, we are, aren't we? Let me just, I'll just throw it up to Acts 2. You just read them later. I, they're, they're great. I love this one, but my favorite one is the next one. Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. These people were arrayed against Christ. Were Pilate's motives good or evil? Evil. But yet this all worked to do whatever your, and I love that Peter, as he prays this, he says two things. Your hand, so God's hands are in this. I love it doesn't just say your plan. Your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These are, I wanted to throw these in as the last little bits because you are going to face not just good in this world, but you're going to face evil. And we have to have a big view of God to deal with it. You're dismissed. I had to get the last part in or I'd have to do a part three. And do not sell Liam to Egypt. Or anybody. Ava, Ava, uh, Crusoe, no, no. Your cousins, no. Uh, 